0: This is going to be a special episode because we have got a roundtable between Mike Isratel, who you guys should hopefully all know, and also Greg Nichols, who a lot of you will know as well, who I've been hounding to get on the show, so I have the absolute pleasure to be interviewing the both of them. I do quickly want to introduce them both uh, because we may be getting some new listeners because we have a wider audience due to it being a roundtable. The roundtable is on genetics. So the genetics of bodybuilding, powerlifting, getting strong and big. So Greg is uh, a coach, as you all know, um, and hopefully know his website as well. So Stronger by Science. Uh, And he's written for loads of major publications. He's also got over a decade of experience under the bar and has a BS in exercise and sports science. Uh, He has three-time, all-time powerlifting records and uh, coaches kind of regular guys and also really, really strong guys. Uh, And hopefully you've recently heard of Mass, uh, which has been released by Greg Mike Zordos, and Eric Helms, which is a monthly research review specifically aimed at strength and physique sports, which is awesome. Uh, Me and Pascal of Revive Stronger, are subscribed to this ourselves. So that's Greg, and of course, Mike, who used to be the professor of exercise science at Temple University, but has recently uh, left there to focus on Renaissance periodization. He is incredibly intelligent, um, a very, very strong and humble guy as well and uh, recently competing and doing very well in bodybuilding for his own right, uh, but also does his own hand at um, BJJ, uh, which he incorporates with his bodybuilding training. Uh, He's also worked alongside and continues to work alongside juggernaut training systems, Um, but most of his time now is spent on podcasts with Renaissance Periodization and Renaissance Plus, which is fantastic, working on eBooks, obviously uh, on Facebook and traveling, doing cool seminars. So that is a brief introduction to both Greg and Mike. I hope you enjoy this first little kind of taster into the round table. We will be having future episodes that you can look forward to. So cheers guys, enjoy the episode. We will first be going over something that I find really interesting. Um, with this topic of genetics, is the fact that kind of we know that ninety nine point nine like percent of our genetics are similar. So, how much of an inca- impact can genetics really have on our potential strength and muscle gains? Um, whether or not that's actually a true fact, are our genetics ninety nine point nine percent the same? Um, I know Mike has talked about how and in the in the pyramid of uh, strength training, individualization is like the last thing to be looking at. Um, I would like to hear your guys' thoughts on this. um, And yeah, just we'll open the floor with that if that's okay. And I don't know if either one of you want to particularly take this one. um, Feel free to go for it or yeah, we can chuck it around.
1: Uh, Do you want to take this first, Mike?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, See what you can add to it or subtract from it. Um, So yeah, so, you know, to take all the uh, three major human races together. Um, Even that much genetic difference amounts to, uh, you know, less than 1% by a long shot uh, difference in total genes. So it's very small, but when we say that it's a very small difference, uh, there's still, within the human populations, a considerable amount of potential for different uh, appearances and responses, especially in magnitudes, not in qualities. Because, you know, yeah, so it's, uh, you know, more than 99% similar sounds super similar. But if you look at what most genes are coding, it's sort of basic functions that we take completely for granted in most animals. For example, uh, from from my memory, a laboratory mouse has about 92% the same genes as a human. Now, you think, holy shit, how's that possible? Well, you know, it has four limbs. It has a heart. It has lungs. It has a liver. It has the same fundamental molecular machinery. I mean, that's the stuff that takes most of your DNA to code, not unsurprisingly, because that shit is super complicated, like what color your skin is and how much muscle you grow per year is much simpler. It's it's, it's a magnitude scale as opposed to a qualitative scale. You know, the genes that engineer your heart, well, it's quite a a gene complex there. So um, yeah, there is a small uh, genetic difference between all humans. So we can uh, say that all humans respond to stressors in more or less the same way. All humans digest food in more or less the same way. But the degrees to which they do it uh, tend to be different. And when you have especially multifactorial uh, situations, like like for example how much testosterone are you secreting how responsive are you to testosterone you may not secrete much more testosterone much less than somebody else Uh, and your responsiveness might be not much more or less but you um, factor those two together you multiply them together and all of a sudden you have someone who's a hyper secreter of testosterone maybe only double the normal testosterone and you have someone who's twice as sensitive to testosterone at the level of a muscle cell uh, then two times two, that's four. And now they're four times more anabolic potentially than someone who has the other side of the equation uh, or the other side of the spectrum for both. And then, you know, so factors that genetically produce muscle growth, I mean, there number at least in the 10 major pathways. Um, and if you are extreme in all 10, you can imagine that you're going to leave people behind and thus the genetic proclivity for muscle growth or lack thereof, strength, lack thereof, et cetera. And there's different proclivity, which Greg to speak, can speak to um, initial starting rates and adaptive proclivity, um, how much you actually adapt from training, then we get, start getting into genetics being com- very considerably complex and being able to say a lot about the magnitude uh, difference between adaptations at the end of the day. Yeah, genetics plays a big role in how far you go and, and where you start. I think more practical examples, Greg can probably take it from here.
1: Yeah, and just one other thing I'd add about the 99.9% similar uh, point. So that, that tells you, the number of genes that we share, but not not necessarily like the types of genes we share. So for example, um, take something like the ACTN3 gene, which codes for actinin, which is a protein in your muscles that uh, essentially allows your fast-twitch fibers to be more explosive than your slow twitch fibers. Um, There's a version of that gene that codes for a protein that basically does what it's supposed to do, and there's a version of that gene that codes for a crappy protein that doesn't really do what it's supposed to do. And you, you look at someone that has the like, correct version of that gene versus the incorrect version of that gene, they both have that same gene. So that would be counted in the 99.9% genetic similarity. But because they have uh, like different versions of that gene, that leads to a phenotypic. Um, and something else, Uh, where you can have the same genes but also different responses is something called copy number variation. So most people probably learned in high school biology that if you have like two alleles for each gene, like one on on the chromosome you got from your mom, one on the chromosome you got from your dad, you have two copies of each gene. That's actually not true. Um, You do have two copies of most genes, but you can have Um, many more than two copies. So there was a study looking at uh, salivary amylase gene, so gene that codes for the enzyme amylase in your saliva uh, that lets you start breaking down starch in your mouth. And basically salivary amylase um, predicts to some degree how much uh, intrinsic reward you'll get from eating starchy foods because you can break more of that down in your mouth uh, it tastes sweeter, it's just generally like a more rewarding experience. And they found that uh, so a paper published in Nature, I believe two years ago found that people that had more copies of the salivary amylase gene had higher levels of salivary amylase um, and therefore they could break down more starch in their mouth, got a larger like reward response. From any amount of starch they ate, and were consequently leaner than people that had fewer copies of the salivary amylase gene, because uh, they didn't have to eat as much starch to get as much intrinsic reward from eating it. Um, so, yeah, that, that's another example of like, you know, all of the people in that study had the same gene, they had the salivary amylase gene, uh, but the number of copies they had of that gene again, influence phenotypic responses, but it would still be counted in that 99.9% of genetic similarity. So yeah, essentially that's 99.9% the same, that's, that's misleadingly high. Like Mike said, the vast majority of those genes are coding for stuff that is going on, uh, well, I mean, all of them are producing proteins on a microscopic scale, but most of them, their effects don't really leave kind of the cellular level. There's a lot of stuff that has to go on in your body or a mouse's body or a fruit fly's body where like something like 70 something percent genetically similar to a fruit fly, but obviously we're much more than 30% typically different from a fruit fly. Um, yeah, I
2: don't know, Jeff Goldblum, uh, especially <laughs> the movie The Fly, uh, go <laughs> <click Sure>. on.
1: <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's there's several different avenues by which you can share basically all of the same genes, but still wind up with very, very different outcomes.
0: I think that's, that's super interesting. And I think it's, yeah, it completely is misleading. And I think a lot of people hear it and they think, oh, like then it just all comes down to hard work, which we will get onto. And I, I think, I don't know, there's a similar or a analogy I could think of. I mean, on, on,
1: an, on an individual level, it definitely all comes down to hard work. But when comparing multiple individuals it definitely has to do with a lot more than just hard work. By the yeah. way,
2: hard, hard work is at least a 50% genetic explanatory factor. <laughs> that's neither here nor there. We, I don't think we want to open up that uh,
0: uh, can of worms today. Oh, well, maybe we do. Um, I was just going to say the analogy something like uh, just like personal trainers. There's a lot of personal trainers, and you could say like they're 99.9% the same, but then there's a lot of different between personal trainers or something along those lines. People can think of that sort of thing like it's the same job, but there's so many differences within that.
2: They um, both put on clothes. They both come in on time. They both train clients. They both use weights. So like to an untrained person, all personal trainers look the same to someone who never goes to the gym, but to someone I mean, like to an alien, you know, like a lot of animals on earth that look the fucking same. Like, you know, so for example, one of the things about genetics, if you take a look at raccoons, you know, your, your human eye is designed... To derive individual humans exceptionally well, it is not derived, designed to derive individual other animals exceptionally well. Like, can you tell tell raccoons apart? Did you see one raccoon in your neighborhood, Did you see another, you're like, that's that motherfucker that went in my garbage. I know him. I know that face. You can't tell them apart, but there wildly, this genetic variation in most animals is much higher than it is within the human subpopulation. So it's one of those situations where it's like, so just because you can't tell it apart, may, maybe means you're not keen to the differences. But when you start really paying attention, the differences can be impactful precisely in the ways also that only, you know, interest us kind of like muscle nerds, right? Like, so if you tell someone, you know, like, well, humans are quite different, you see, and they're like, well, how's that? And you're like, well, I know we all have two eyes and two ears and shit like that, but some of us grow muscle much faster than others. And to a person not in the industry to be like, so fucking what? We're like, well, but you see, that's the big part of life. (laughs) Doesn't that make sense? They're like, no, we're like, well, never mind. I guess it's not a big difference, but to us, you know, it's a curious difference for sure.
0: Awesome. And well, the, the model I was actually going to bring up was um, bar McDonald. I don't know if you've seen um, this model he actually made. It was had like work at the top, had talent on the side, and it had high and low for each. And then for someone who was like high at working and high at talent, they were a thoroughbred. Then they had someone who was a high worker, but had low talent were a workhorse. And then someone who had low talent, and high and low work sorry were the always gunner so someone who really just tries and then someone who has high talent but low work ethic were the prima donna and do you see that as like a representation of what people could potentially see like are people that like easily segmented or is that like you said is that opening a can of worms and because like your work ethic is actually part of your almost part of your talent
2: greg you want to take this one first or you want to start on um, I,
1: well, I I haven't seen the model, so I wouldn't be comfortable commenting on it too much. Um, but I think, I think what I would say in general is that those classifications might hold, I like the very far corners of that little box that they would make. Um, but it, it definitely, so I think, I think the, the biggest thing to keep in mind when we talk about genetics and innate variability between people is all of these things tend to be dispersed on bell curves and odds are you're not an outlier. Um, like most people have similar proclivities to work hard. Most people have similar proclivities for getting bigger and stronger. There are certainly some people who are just absolutely cursed um, you know they can probably still make some gains but they'll be uh, very very underwhelming and then there's some people who are excessively blessed and really don't have to do much of anything and like they just look at a weight and get big and strong um, so like definitely on the extremes crazy stuff can happen but i think that i mean the majority of people would be somewhere somewhere like where those four quadrants intersect and maybe would skew slightly more one direction or another. Um, But really, for the majority of people there, I mean, the majority of people are going to be more similar than different. And I think genetics kind of only start getting interesting uh, when you start dealing with freaky people on either end of the spectrum.
2: Very cool. Mike,
0: is there anything you wanted to add to that?
2: That pretty much said it all. These are spectrum variables, so to say, you can group them. Uh, I mean, grouping, it, grouping them into two extremes is very interesting as far as intellectual exercise, and it can really sort of derive some clarity as to why things happen the way they do. But when you go back into real-world application, you know, um, you, you're going to have uh, individuals that are prone to some extent in a degree 1 through 10, a really fraction of degrees between that, all of war proclivity of genetics for muscle, size, and, and there's other genetics just genetics for fat uh, size, fat distribution, muscle shape, et cetera, et cetera. You know, n- not all of us, when we get a certain level of muscularity, end up looking like Jared Feather. Um, Fuck that guy. But anyway, I, I, I mentioned, make sure I insult him at least once. Mm-hmm. So but but in any case, you know, there's tons of variables that in intersect. I think at a fundamental level, I think, uh, you know, whatever genetics you do have, it's uh, probably a good idea to, it's, it's quite simple, you have the genetics you have and then you have a variety of sort of a spectrum of potential input you can put into the process of deriving high amounts of muscle growth or strength or whatever, and it's a personal value judgment on your part as to how much you want to input into the process. Um, the interesting thing, and I think Brad can probably talk about this much more, is that um, there is a little bit of mystery to it because initial conditions aren't, they're somewhat predictive of final states and uh, adaptation proclivities for muscle gain and strength gain, but they're not as telling as you would expect. So, the person that was the most jacked not lifting weights in high school may not be the person that's the most jacked if everyone in your high school starts lifting weights. Some guy who maybe didn't look all that big was just going to have this gnarly adaptation genetics and just keep fucking growing 10 pounds of muscle every year unabated for fuck knows until he's like big rainy or something like that. So, one of, uh, some people I think have a tendency to uh, sort of lay out their genetics or what their view of genetics is a bit early in the process maybe a day one or month one, and they go on the forums, and they realize they don't look like Mr. Olympia yet, and they'll say, well, man, shit, you know, I'm not gonna allocate as many resources as I was planning on originally, because clearly I'm not gonna be very good. Mm-hmm. And, and the funny thing is, is that um, it's a bit early to say that sort of thing. So I, I don't know, Greg probably have some, some better recommendations, I'd like to hear his take on that. But I think I think giving it uh, maybe two to four years of pretty, pretty diligent training and pretty decent food and programming and stuff consistency to after i think two to four years you kind of start to figure out which way the cookie crumbles for you uh potentially at least to some extent now there's some stuff with satellite cell number which you don't run out of those shits until you get into like five plus years of training or ten years you don't really start to milk out the rest of those so i think some of the curves are mysterious until then because you might grow amazingly your first two to four years but that shit slows down like crazy or it doesn't slow down but i think i think giving it a good old college try is good because you can't quite tell from initial conditions with super good accuracy, if you if you're the man with a plan or not, right? Gregory, you Gregory?
1: Yeah, as as far as I'm aware, every time it's been like actually studied, um, what and and actually, I'll note it's not just like strength and hypertrophy; it's also uh, like aerobic adaptation as well. I
2: mean, um, everything actually.
1: <laughs> yeah. So when when looking at like VO2 max, lactate threshold muscle size, measures of strength, Um, and studies that either look at at correlations between starting points and uh, percent increases with training, or studies that group by responsiveness, so uh, kind of like post hoc sorting out high versus low responders and seeing uh, were were those groups different when they started training, like is that something that predicted the the differential response? Literally all of the studies that have looked at that, as far as I'm aware, have found that there's no relationship whatsoever between starting point and trainability. Um, so just, if, if people want to look up some examples. Um, I know they made note of that in Evolve 2005. Um, they specifically looked at that in Davidson, 2014. Um, and Trella and Bannon, 2007. Uh, I, I can send you links, Steve. Just want to put them in the show notes, um, but yeah, that's that's something that strangely like gets a lot of pushback, and in my experience, it's um, a lot of pushback from people who have been training for a while and started out kind of small and then ended up getting big and strong. because These people kind of get this complex where you know, oh, I started, I was 130 pounds, and now I'm like big and strong and Jack like. Obviously I had terrible genetics to start with, but I still did something with them. So I must work way harder and be way smarter about training than everyone else. Um, and yeah, they may have had crappy like, baseline muscle genetics uh, for just how much muscle they'd carry around if they did absolutely nothing. But that isn't at all predictive of their genetics for adaptation to training.
0: I think that's super interesting, the fact that some people can kind of, yeah, they, they pick up a dumbbell and they grow really quick, but then they might not m- grow much more after that, for example, whereas other people will grow slowly and just kind of trickle along gaining for longer. And both might have actually good genetics or equally good genetics. Um, and it just comes down to the fact it, who's actually being consistent and adhering longer term. And I think, I think that's a really nice thing for a lot of the listeners who maybe feel like they have those poorer genetics. I, for myself, I know... Like when I first go into lifting, I was like, why am I not big and jacked and like as big as these guys yet? But after time, like I'm looking now and I'm like, oh, actually I have like a respectable physique. And It's like, well, I used to think I had bad genetics. Potentially, actually, it was just like you're you're a a late bloomer, as it were. Um, So I think that's really interesting. Something the listeners and some of them might not like it, but I think it's actually a really, really positive positive thing for them to kind of have a think about and take away. Um, Is there kind of do you know like in terms of how big can we get muscular like what's our natural kind of limits is there good data on that at the moment i know greg you've written quite a lot about this i know mike has a lot of views on kind of the fat free max index and um, i know greg you've written about martin Burkham's model um, of his kind of the way he's done it how good are these models are people using them in the right way are they getting a bit misconstrued and confused are they actually helpful um i don't know if Greg, you want to touch on that first?
1: Yeah. So, man, I think the intuitive to me, the most intuitive to me, at least, is uh, Casey Butts' model. If, I I don't know if his name is pronounced butt or, <laughs> but or b u t t. So I assume it's but. Um, but the the way he. There, Derived his model is basically: you look at uh, natural bodybuilders and uh, indicators of frame size, height, uh, wrist and ankle measurements, um, and then how that then related to their muscularity when they got on stage. So, um, for people with good genetics, that's not necessarily going to tell you what like the hard limit of lean body mass is, um, but it, it'll give you a, a decent indication. I think the biggest drawback to that model is it probably skews high for most people, um, since it is specifically looking at people who were accomplished natural bodybuilders. Um, When you start dealing with more general models that don't attempt to account for frame size at all, uh, like for example, that free mass index, just simply because you're not doing anything to control for that rather large variable, um, it's going to be going to be much less predictive. Another pretty good one, which unfortunately isn't really accessible for most people, is um, a guy named Francis Hallway. He has a metric uh, that's muscle to bone ratio. Um, and so that's that's wet weight of muscle, not dry weight of muscle. If it was dry weight of muscle, uh, you could get it from DEXA and it would be super easy. Um, but the problem with that is to estimate wet weight of muscle uh, of, of bone, I mean, uh, to estimate wet weight of bone, you need to get like 27 measurements taken by an anthropometrist like to get a good estimate of that. And the estimates they can produce for wet weight of bone are actually pretty good. Um, validating them against uh, cadaver data, like they, they correlate very, very strongly. But anyway, you, you, you're not going to be able to take those measurements yourself. Um, but he's found that that's actually been quite predictive Um, Looking at elite athletes from a lot of different disciplines, finding that uh, most of the time, people without drugs can get up to about a 5 to 1 muscle to bone ratio. uh, With some people getting up in the 5.5-ish to 1 range, um, but past about 5.5 pounds or kilos of muscle per pound or kilo of bone, uh, past that, most drug-free athletes just aren't going to get there. Um, so, and that's, that's another thing, like I think, uh, kind of like Casey Butt's model, that does account for frame size explicitly, in, in this case, because it's uh, estimating bone weight. So I think that the ones that estimate frame size to some degree uh, still have their issues, but are generally going to be more accurate than something like fat-free mass index, which um, can't, can't and doesn't do anything to account for frame size whatsoever. Awesome.
2: Uh, add, I, I know, but, yeah, go for it. So uh, that's all, so when, when we talk about the kind of models that best predict what, what I guess can be turned as you know, peak muscularity, um, I suppose that what we're trying to predict here is given all possible inputs short of anabolic drug, how large uh, of muscles can an individual or certain parameters develop. And what we have to, uh, we have to, what is really helpful in understanding how these models work and how every single kind of these models can and will work is they work uh, like many things on a statistical basis so what they're telling you is it is a certain percent unlikely that someone over x amount of muscularity is drug free but they can never tell you that it is certainly not the case so problem number one that all models like this i don't say this but just don't have the power to to delineate is there are is a, hu- a huge amount of genetic variation, and like Mike said, most of it is relatively uninteresting because most people average. But w- these discussions don't normally come up for average people of who's on drugs and who's not. They come up for non-average people, and um, uh, you know, take the perspective of Big Rainy for a second. You know, Big Rainy is currently actually, from what I've heard, three hundred and forty-five pounds. Um, with abs and things, which is pure fucking nonsense, by the way. You what? No, I know. It, there's pictures. It doesn't look like human getting anymore. It doesn't look like getting anymore. It's just, it looks like a giant question mark. Might as well do that. So, um, you know, if him with his genetics, let's assume he has even a way above average response to drugs, um, and let's assume he's shooting drugs to the moon, which maybe he is. Um, that still, if he was 245 pounds at the end of a productive 10 year natural training cycle, would it surprise? No, it not fucking surprise. You get 100 fucking pounds of muscle out of drugs, and holy fuck, that's a lot. So now a 205 pound person at his height it beats almost all the models. Um, now, what do I mean by beats? He's on the very tail end of a distribution, he's maybe three standard deviations out. But with six or seven billion people, you're gonna find individuals that are four or five standard deviations out sort of routinely in a sense, meaning every couple of years they may float up. And uh, the, so so the way, you know, when you're like, you know, on Reddit or whatever, and people are have a thread like, is this guy Natty or not? The way you're supposed to couch your views on it is in probabilities. So if you know nothing about an individual and there are four standard deviations outside the Natty limit, <clears throat> you can say, quote, it is exceedingly unlikely that that individual is drug free, but I reserve that there is a possibility that they're in fact drug free, right? And if they're one standard deviation out, you say it is quite likely that they are drug free, but a little bit more likely that they are not drug free. If they're right in the middle of the distribution as to what we consider maximum development, it's a 50-50 chance. And then another thing to say is, so that's talking about superjack people. Another uh, thing to say for for individuals, and this is a little bit more on the not, maybe not depressing end, but sort of not enlightening end. uh, I think a lot of people uh, tend to start to really shift shift and shuffle their training and really have this sort of ontological shock um, about what am I doing wrong when they're like 20 muscle pounds away from the natty limit, and they've been training for seven years and they're just not getting there seemingly. Well, again, if the distribution comes to fuck us all in the ass, that's the peak muscularity for humans. Usually, they don't put those numbers at average, well-developed muscularity. They put that automatically. So here's the average distribution mean. That model predictor is already two standard deviations out. So if you're just average in muscular development proclivity, you'll probably never reach whatever the fuck, FFMI 25, whatever that shit is. Greg could be more assertive with you know, whatever, Casey Butt's model, that sort of whatever, whatever that amount is for height, et cetera. Most people won't reach that, even if they do everything they can, because most people don't have amazing genetics. People have misinterpreted the FFMI-25 thing to be like, well, I mean, I'm still off my natty limit, so there's no point for me to switch to drugs, or there's no point this and that, or maybe I'm doing something wrong because of my natty limit so far off. Like You may be at your own limit, way before you reach the natty limit. The natty limit is for the human population. But, what, Greg, what is it, two standard deviations above the mean of muscularity, or three or something like that? Like, it's already special people.
1: It's so it's like it's like two point three or something.
2: That's like you know, that's like ninety nine percent of all people is straight up never gonna be that muscular. So if you're like just to abuse FMI for a bit, you know, if you're a a free Mass Index of, of nineteen and it's supposed to be anything above 25s on drugs, but up to twenty-five you're a good moral American, you know, you vote and pay your taxes. <laughs> um, then <laughs> you know, in the United Kingdom you're all immoral fucks anyway, so isn't you know, <laughs> that included. But it, so you know, if you have an FFMI of nineteen and you're like, what am I doing wrong? The answer could be, you did everything right, and you're just reaching the peak of your muscularity, and there's nothing surprising about it. It's like saying, you know, just about the fastest that fast humans can run is about 11 seconds in 100 meters. Now, there's some people run faster than that, but 11 seconds is damn good. Can you imagine the average person training and being like, shit, I'm still at a 13-1, what am I doing wrong? Motherfucker, almost no one ever runs at 11. That's not what you're going to achieve. That's incredible. So I think some people just take for granted they're going to achieve incredible. And then needlessly program shift or do a variety of other things when that number doesn't come. And I think there's something to be said for that as well as for the freak side of the equation.
0: And I think that's super interesting. And that actual that comparison and idea that you gave across is fantastic because I think a lot of people can relate to that. And they can, yeah, you, it, you know there's fast people and there's people that you know you're never going to be as fast as that. But people for whatever reason with muscularity are like, they have their eyes set on a prize and they're like, I'm going to get there eventually. There's Where's this silver bullet? I'm going to find it. Um, something I did want to touch on because we've talked about kind of, uh, if, I, if I can just, just Oh yeah, go for it. For, like, for a little bit. Um, something
1: I like that you brought up, Mike, is that yes, uh, if, if people are using, people tend to use like the idea of like the quote unquote natty limit wrong on, on both sides of the equation. Uh, one, everyone and their brother thinking that that's like their goal that they should shoot for. It's not a bad goal, but uh, yeah, based on how the models were derived they it's probably not somewhere that the vast majority of people are going to get in the first place. And then on the other end, if people are trying to use it, like as a way to predict if someone's on drug tests, like I, I agree a hundred percent that that should be addressed um, instead of just a hard cutoff probabilistically. And incidentally, since I love Excel, I made a spreadsheet based on like the published research data on uh, fat-free mass indices of users and non-users um, as a way to, to get an idea of the odds that someone is drug-free based on their fat-free mass index. Um, and I was hoping it would catch on because it, it's the, as far as I'm aware, it's like the most uh, statistically rigorous way to go about answering this question, but I also don't think Anyone understood it, so it didn't. Uh, but we can put I that. I never in saw the show it, notes. dragons, now I'm curious.
2: Please do. <laughs> do what? I never saw it, man. I'm I'm really curious to see it. I please please put it in the show notes because I, I want to take a look, totally look. at it.
1: I mean, it's it's really simple. Like it's just like you take the means and standard deviations for users and non-users, like plot those probability uh, dist- or um, uh, probability distributions. Um, and then, like, I, I also have a way that it can account for your assumptions about um, oh. the percentage of a population that's on drugs, because we, uh, we can't forget about base rate neglect here, guys. This is, man, this is another thing that, like, this is way off from the weeds, but it drives me crazy when people uh, have this discussion. So, essentially, like, you know, take, if you assume the quote unquote natty limit for fat free mass indexes, 25 or something, and you come across someone who has a fat-free mass index of 25 and a half, and you want to assess the probability that they're on drugs or not. Um, one thing you have to keep in mind is what percentage of the population you're dealing with is on drugs or not. So for example, um, if that's like a NPC bodybuilder or something like that, untested bodybuilding, you assume 95% plus of those guys are on gear. So if you come across an NPC bodybuilder that has a fat-free mass index of 23, there's probably still a better than 50% chance that that person's on drugs, even though their fat-free mass index is relatively low. If on the other hand, you're dealing with like an IPF powerlifter, who, even if you take like a really cynical assumption and assume that 20% of them are on gear, which is, much higher than, than I assume it is. Uh, even if you think twenty percent of them are on gear, and you say there's an eighty percent chance that someone is drug free in this population you're dealing with, uh, somewhere above the quote unquote natty limit, odds could still be in their favor that they're drug free. There there could still be a fifty percent plus chance. Um, so yeah, that's that's the other uh, in just so the more the more classic example. Of um, base rate neglect out there is so if I describe someone to you and I say um, they're kind of shy, quiet, bookish. they uh, you know their their idea of a fun evening is not to like go out to the bar or whatever. They prefer to sit home and curl up by the fire with a nice book. Um, are odds better that this is a uh, librarian or a factory worker. Um, Oh, and also, in describing this person, uh, they're a man. So most people, when they first hear that, will say librarian, but the thing to keep in mind is there's like a 100 times more male factory workers than male librarians, so even if only one percent of male factory workers meet that description, there's a better there's a better chance that that's a factory worker than a librarian. So, essentially, the the spreadsheet is built to take that into account as well. Um, so you you not only plug in what the fat free mass index is, but also your assumption of base rate of how many users are in the population you're dealing with. And without without accounting for that assumption, you really can't get Any kind of grasp on the probabilities you're dealing with?
0: That's yeah, super interesting. I think I've actually, I think I've seen it. Um, I can't remember it in detail, but I'll certainly link it in the notes below so people can have that because um, right. I think that sounds really interesting. I think yeah, if, I mean, people love a natty witch hunt, so why not use something that's actually <laughs> fairly like rigorous in your testing and, and go with the Excel spreadsheet that you produce. So, I mean, I did want to touch yeah, on Yeah, I, I
2: don't
1: mind if people witch hunt. I just prefer they <laughs> witch hunt in a statistically rigorous way.
2: <laughs>
1: you know what I mean? <laughs> you totally. I feel like kind of counter to witch hunts, but whatever.
0: It, it's Yeah, it's the evidence-based witch hunt. So yeah, good empirically <laughs> driven witch hunt. We have way too many um, to of those. What I wanted to bring up was you talked about in Casey Buck's model kind of um, – kind of talking about bones and structures and I think I've heard men Hentelman talking about as well where it's like he talks about it in relation to like it's your foundation. The bigger the foundation you've got, the more ability you have to build upon that foundation. So like a house, if it has a big foundation, you can build a really big house. If you've got big bones, big wrists, big ankles, you have the potential to build more muscle upon those. That sounds awfully similar to like a mesomorph, ectomorph, Um, that sort of thing is that is there any like reasoning behind this like is I know we like as a lot of the listeners will know these aren't particularly great models um, but they do some have some similarities within that I don't know if you guys if uh, Mike particularly wanted to touch on um, those sort of models and their predictors and whether people can be one or the other or if there's any genetic kind of individualization within those
2: I'd love to start that one off. The uh, classic body typing model missed one kind of body type in their search for extremities of body types, and that is the skinny fat hipster, which uh, is a modern body type, but I'm sure it had to be around back then when they made these things up. So, you know, so we can take a a look at just two primary variables. Let's keep bone structure out of this for just a second. Let's imagine that a meso-endo-ectomorph is uh, based on two variables and their intersection, uh, muscularity and leanness. So someone with a lot of muscle and not a lot of fat would be a mesomorph. Someone with a lot of both would be an endomorph. And someone with not a lot of fat but also not a lot of muscle is going to be an ectomorph. They left out the skinny fat hipster which has lots of fat, but not a lot of muscle and looks great. And, you know, one of those um, flannel shirts with a top button button and skinny jeans, like, you know, I'll never be able to wear. So, uh, you know, that's the thing is that if you're going to look at those two intersecting variables, you have to remember that there's six or four peaks to it, right? Not three. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's kind of almost like a tragedy when someone was like, because, you know, the way they describe endomorph, for example, um, Somebody who had plenty of body fat, big, big sort of big wide bones, but would put on a ton of muscle and strength, and that left out a bunch of sad motherfuckers that had these tiny frames and a shitload of fat on them, and not a lot of muscle building proclivity or base rate to begin with, or base size, and what the fuck, they were like, oh yeah, I'm an endomorph, and two years of training later, they don't have shit to show for it, and they're like, I'm not going to be a lumberjack, apparently, like this model said I was supposed to be, and I know I'm not going to be Mr. Baywatch mesomorph guy. I know I'm not going to be champion endurance runner, actomorph guy, but damn it, I thought I was going to be big and strong and at the very least hairy. Um, so, you know, it, it's one of those things that it just misses one one-fourth of the of the potential population, and then when we expand our view and say, okay, well, so if we got the one-fourth, and really it's just a spectrum of muscularity and body fat, then we can put in a spectrum of bone size into there and frame size, and that makes the model much more complex, takes our three or four different body types and makes them damn near fucking useless because now there's this really, right now, you know, we have like a, instead of a square, we have like a fucking octagon or something. It starts to look like a circle of, of, of variation we can put in there. I, I would go so far as to say that, you know, you can put in a bunch of stuff. So for example, there's a difference between bone cross-sectional area, and bone length, individuals vary on that. There's a difference between muscle um, attachment site width and actual bone width. There's also a difference in in which part of your body is big. Some people have relatively narrow interacromial space or interacromial width. The shoulders are narrow, but they have really wide hips. Some people have the other way around. Some people have wide both. Some people have a narrow both. So once you start talking about it like this, you know, you're really just uh, – these three body types, uh, the, the you know sort of a really old mesomorph, endomorph, ectomorph – just become a fucking total waste of time, and the only question you have to pose for yourself is: What is what is my proclivity to gain muscle, and what is my initial state? What is my proclivity to gain or lose body fat? What is my initial state? In, in the multiple parameters in which they are variable, what is my proclivity to have the frame size to potentially carry even more muscle, et cetera? And then after that, it's all said and done. It looks like a pretty complicated soup to mix up. And I would say that it's probably be best not to really look at that suit too much unless you're really into this kind of stuff like Greg and I and you're just doing it for intellectual curiosity, rather just throw your dice in and uh, see how you do uh, because that shit all sorts itself out. You know, it's interesting looking at stuff, but you can't change any of this unless you're working on a super advanced genetic shit, which in RP we always are. We'll be producing fake humans in no time. Um, you can just have your own surrogate, and you know, they're farmed and they have this pretend life they think they're living and then they're killed so you can have their body. But anyway, it's a nice life they have. So I'm getting off track. But in any case, it's one of those things like, you know, it's not just like the two variable, the three body types. It's an infinite number of body types and because there's so many variables determining muscularity and body fat uh, distribution, there's another one, I just made another one up, body fat distribution. Like, do you have a lot of upper body fat or lower body fat, et cetera? Which one are you, mezzo, endo, ecto, what the fuck is that, right? So. It's it's much more complex, but in, in in some sense, it's much more simple because it really is muscularity versus leanness and body shape, and you know which which type you are is really kind of a fucking point of a question to ask. Me. Right.
1: And uh, another thing I'll add about somatotyping is uh, it was never meant to say anything about like trainability or bodybuilding or strength training or anything like that in the first place. It was a crackpot psychology theory. Um, the idea was that you could body type people, uh, and if someone was an ectomorph, they were going to be like shy and nervous. If someone <laughs> was a mesomorph, they were going to be a bold adventurer and highly intelligent. Because they beat
2: everyone up all the time. <laughs> yeah.
1: And if someone was an uh, endomorph, I think they were uh, stereotyped as like, lazy and stupid, which <laughs> that, that stereotype has, has continued to uh, carry over to the modern day. Um, Anyway, but yeah, it was uh, it was all just like a crackpot psychological theory. It had it had nothing to do with strength training in the first place. But the book, like the really popularized it, The Atlas of Man, dropped in uh, 1954, I believe, when like the whole bodybuilding like physical culture was taking off in the first place. And so that got like picked up by that movement and like pre Golden Age bodybuilders uh, and just stuck around ever since yeah that that was never what the application was supposed to be like it's just crackpot stupid psychology
0: yeah i think it's it i mean people know it now is something that's it's making a gross simplification out of things um and actually it's it's less helpful than it actually ever kind of could be and um i i just want to make sure you guys um i definitely want to get you on again but i know you both are busy so um, should we call it here? We've had like a nice introduction about kind of muscular limits, talking about kind of genetic procliv- proclivities to muscle growth um, and how kind of we can have fast slow burners and kind of, I loved Mike's comment there about we should just kind of chuck in the dice and see there we go and give it a good try. Um, but I definitely think we have a lot more we could delve into. So I wanna thank you both for taking the time now um, and sorry that it got cut a bit short. Sorry to the viewers that it got a bit short because I know we we're just getting into things, um, and I want to definitely get you on again. So, yeah, thank you so much for coming on, and I'll make sure everything we talked about is in the show notes. Everything that people can contact you will be in the show notes as well, um, and hopefully we, uh, we can catch up soon. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve.
2: Thanks for having us, and hopefully we'll both be back at some point to, to keep happening. Definitely.